Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Just a quick note, wanted to mention that we had two independent audio issues in recording this episode, so we had to fall back to our emergency backup audio streams. So I'm happy that we're still able to bring the full episode and the interview with Devin Estes that we have lined up for you next. And I regret that it wasn't able to be up to our regular audio standards. Hope you can still enjoy the show. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir 1.11.3 was released. Now, this is just a point release, which mostly includes edge case bug fixes. And that's actually something I like to see in the projects that I depend on. Because when it gets down to the point where they're just like getting these edge cases things that I've never actually encountered, then it gives me a whole lot more confidence in the state of the project. There was, however, one minor new feature, which is also fairly a niche situation, but it adds two different functions that are macro.uniqueVar and macro.generateUniqueArguments. To help understand what this was, I reached out to Wojtek Mach, who was able to help me kind of get my head around this. And really, this comes down to being useful because it allows you to define a variable with the same name inside of a macro that is guaranteed to be distinct and unique from any variables that are declared outside of the macro that could otherwise collide. So it's not something I've ever encountered, but if you are in the habit of writing more complex macros where you're declaring variables that need to track things, definitely check this out to help your macro hygiene be clean. Also coming up in February, the 16th through the 19th, we have Lambda Days 2021. It'll be an online conference. I've noticed that Jose has been hinting heavily on something that he's excited about and plans to announce at the conference. Just the other day, I was going through a list of all of his tweets, and it looks really cool. He's working on something interesting, speeding up something, making it go really fast. Excited to see what he has in store for us. So prices are listed in euros. There's three different levels depending on early bird pricing or not. So check it out if it sounds interesting to you. And I'm sure that we'll keep you updated too after the uh, after the announcement here on the uh, here on the show. Oh yeah, for sure. Also in the news, uh, Phoenix HTML may be deprecating the odd f equals form four syntax. If you don't know what that means, this is probably not the news for you. But if you're using Live View, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It may be deprecated uh, by way of introducing validated HTML. Remember, I'm talking about Phoenix.html here. Is this that part of that part of Phoenix that that generates HTML? Uh, we got a link to the issue. Uh, it's particularly good news for Live View users because there's uh, it, it needed a way to you know open the form tag but not close it, uh, not have that uh, anonymous function passed inside that not anonymous function that anonymous, that function block inside. If you're not using Live View, this might still be exciting because this kind of means that there would be validated HTML. It's no longer just being treated like strings, random strings strung together. Now it's going to be validated HTML. Kind of similar to what goes on with uh, Live View and tests, right? Uh, the, the HTML that's produced out of Live View in tests are are parsed by Floki, uh, which is an HTML parser. So essentially, if it doesn't parse, it must not be valid. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that one. And yeah. next up, I saw something on Twitter that was flying by. There was a generator diffing as a service is essentially what I call it. And then I saw, wow, this is from David, our host on the show. And so, David, maybe you can kind of tell us about what this is actually doing and help people understand why they should, they should go check this out. 
There's uh, several diffing uh, sites out there. Um, PhoenixDiff.org uh, is, is one that exists today, and it's only about Phoenix. It's, it's wonderful. I really like it. Unfortunately, there's only a way to see the differences between versions of Phoenix and versions of Phoenix generated with dash dash live, right? And, and that flag didn't exist for, for a while. Um, so anyway, in some cases, you may have generated your Phoenix project like three years ago, and it didn't have live view. And now you're generating new stuff with binary IDs and with live view, but with, you know, without Postgres or something like that, right? And you want to see what all those, the, all those differences are. There's not a great way to see those diffs unless you just run that stuff locally and just do get diff on your own. So I, I created the service to essentially create those diffs uh, if I haven't seen them before and show them to you. So it, it'll basically, it'll spin up some Docker instances, download the versions of things, stream stream the progress of these these projects being generated. Uh, and then once the diff is created, it's cached forever. Um, so you only have to run that combination once uh, and then it's there forever. But also, in, in, in not just Phoenix, this is also including Scenic. Uh, it's also including Phoenix Gen Auth for the authorization stuff. It's also including Nerves. And sometimes these folks have several different generators, too. There's like Nerves New, there's Nerves New Examples, that kind of stuff. Um, so you can see how that stuff uh, evolves over, over time. So if you're interested in that, especially as, as you know, you have an older project that you might want to like update to see like how did things change over time and I should just update it to the new standards. Pretty cool little service. It was fun to work on. And that's available at utils.zest.dev. And you'll see uh, the tool there on the left side. So I got to say... There's a couple things where this actually I thought was relevant and important to me is like I've been using the Phoenix Gen Auth on this project I've been playing with. And then I've seen, oh, there's been new releases of it since then. Dang it. Because it's generated code that you then kind of tweak from there. It's like, what did they change? You know, it's like <laughs> this is one of those tools that can be very helpful in picking up on those little differences. The other thing I've done whenever I've gone like from I did this starting with Rails like going from like a major version of like three to four or something like that, or even going like from Phoenix, you know, one to two, like big jumps. What is the difference? You know, previously what I've done is just generated it locally and then have into two different directories and then do like a, a local diff on the directories to find out what's the difference. So having something like this, that's just available for the community and it's easy to go back and grab different things. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that's it for the news. Today, I'm excited to have our special guest, Devin Estes. So, Devin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Devin, you have been involved with the Elixir community for some time, and you've been doing a lot of interesting things. And I've, I was really happy to, that you could come on again and talk to us about some, one of the latest libraries you've been putting out, which is called Muzak. I assume, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think that's the way everybody sort of goes with it. <laughs> So I look forward to talking about that. But before we jump into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you live, what kind of work you're doing. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I am American, but live in Berlin. We've, we've lived here for five years now and Berlin is home and going to remain home or we're waiting on hopefully our permanent residence permits now. And uh, then we've, uh, yeah, I've been here since 2015. I, for most of my career, have been a freelancer, but a little while ago, I started with uh, Forza FC, which is sort of a, a spinoff of Forza Football. You know, it's uh, uh, started at Forza Football and, uh, you know, Alexi is still the CTO, although he's like part-time at both companies, uh, same CEO as well. Uh, but it's, it's serving a different, uh, different audience and different market. 
I'm running the backend team there, and uh, we're making a fan engagement platform, uh, starting with uh, football clubs, but then for other sports as well. Uh, so basically, it's a sport fan engagement platform, and uh, yeah, working on the backend team there. And yeah, that's that's sort of me. Is it ForzaFootball.com? Just so it's not Forza Football. So that's that was I was a little confused by it at first too when they reached out to me. So it is a technically a separate company uh, with you know like the only people that work at Forza Football and Forza FC are Alexei uh, Magusev, who's on the Elixir fourteen. I think a lot of people know him, but so Alexei works at both, and the CEO works at both. Uh, but other than that, they're totally separate companies. Like they're registered as independent companies. Like the most of the team for Forza FC is either in Kiev or remote. Whereas almost everyone for Forza Football is in Stockholm. So like different companies, there isn't a website for Forza FC. Like they're trying to be really uh, low profile and like behind the scenes. And that's part of their selling point is like, you know, we want the team to have the like fan engagement. Like we don't want fans to be engaging with Forza FC. We want fans to be engaging with like Arsenal or AC Milan or Galatasaray, not us, you know? So there may not be much info on the web about them. All right. Now, Devin, one of the things I think is interesting when we talk about, I, you know, I mentioned how you've been in the Elixir space for a long time. Uh, one of the things, one of the libraries I was first aware of that you had been creator of was Benchy. It's a widely used library for running performance benchmarks on Elixir code. I mentioned that because this other library that you talked about that you've just created and kind of been announcing is Muzak. And it's also, I would describe it as testing adjacent. Right, it's not directly around like unit testing my code, but it is around performance or in some other way inspecting the correctness or completeness or some other aspect of my code that's not part of a running system that I deploy. Right, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about Benchy and kind of how that has led you to where you are here. Yeah, so I think it's sort of important to mention that I didn't create Benchy. My friend here in Berlin, uh, Toby, Tobias Pfeiffer, uh, created it. And uh, I started working on it with him, I think, back in 2017 or something. I, I used it a fair amount. And uh, I, you know, Toby was a friend and there was a lot of work to do. It was like, you know, I, I think I should, should help out with this. It seems reasonable. So uh, we did a lot of work on it. And I'm a, one of the maintainers, but Toby created it. And it's sort of still sort of, uh, you know, we moved it out of his, uh, his personal project into its own github org a little while ago to make it not only his to make it a little bit more clear that it's you know a community project and not just his project but it's it's something that we work on but still you know that was toby's thing testing is very important to me it's something that i personally like and something that i personally uh sort of lean on a bit it's one of the reasons that i started working on Muzak and for a, a long time wanted to work on it. It's been something that I've been sort of toying around with and working on for a while now, more than a year, uh, at least. Yeah, because testing is important to me, good tests are important to me, what I define as good tests. And that's just something that I, you know, I always sort of scratch my own itch because I do a lot of it. And because it's important to me, I end up making tools and libraries to help make that process better or easier. So yeah, that's just, it's just a thing that I like thing that I put a lot of time into because I think it's important. Nice. Well, thank you for helping to set the record straight on Tobias and his involvement in creation of that. So I don't ever want to give credit undue where, you know, <laughs> I truly appreciate all the contributions that people make in the community. So glad to have that straight. 
so we've kind of teased about then this, this idea of this new thing that you've created, Muzak. This is a mutation testing library. So maybe you can first kind of give us an idea of what is mutation testing? Right. So mutation testing at its core boils down to break stuff and see what happens. That's pretty much what it does. Uh, mutation testing in the more formal way of describing it is an automated process of systematically introducing failures or bugs into your code and then running your test suite and to see if any of those failures, what, what they call mutations, are caught by your test suite. So the theory is that if you are to uh, really fundamentally break your application in some way, like changing a string to just a totally random string, hopefully if you do that, you should have at least one failing test to tell you that something's gone wrong. If you're able to fundamentally alter or break your application in some way and not produce a failing test, then that's going to tell you one of two things. Likely that you're missing a test or less likely, but still possible, you're just not using that code anymore. Maybe you can delete that code. So it helps you find missing tests and it helps you find unused code. That sounds really fun to try out on all of my code bases. So are you guys making extensive use of this where you're working right now? At the moment, no, uh, because I am not entirely sure how to, well, A, I'm pretty new there, and B, it's a commercial project, so there's Muzak and then there's Muzak Pro, because mutation testing libraries are, uh, it's a lot of work, <laughs> uh, because there are a lot of edge cases to do it. You have to dig pretty deeply into some pretty uh, dark corners of the Elixir compiler and of the Beam functionality, and then also to solve the main problem of mutation testing, which is runtime, it gets even more complicated. Uh, and it's a lot of work. So the way that we would use it where I am at, at Ports FC, it would require a commercial license for that. And I'm not 100% sure how to broach that with them yet, honestly, <laughs> because I'm new. And also, frankly, there are bigger fish to fry. Uh, it's still a relatively uh, new-ish product. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's really, uh, as, as a product, as a platform, it really is sort of taken off in the last six months. Um, so they're just starting to grow their team a little bit. And before adding this, there are other more important things that I would like to sort of get under everybody's feet first, but it's something that ideally I would like to have because uh, to me, I think it unlocks uh, the ability to do something that is super, super important, which is the basically the thing that I think mutation testing gives you is it lets you move towards this, what I think many people consider a sort of ideal of a development workflow, which is I write my code, I write some tests, I either push it straight to your, your mainline branch or open a PR, whatever your team's workflow is. And then if CI is green, when the merge to the mainline happens or when the push to the mainline branch happens, you can just deploy it to the production because you feel confident that your tests are good. And that flow and that confidence brings so much value to a team. It's mind-blowing. Only, I've only worked in one place where we've had that flow, where it was everything was totally automated and we could go so fast and there were almost never any bugs when there were, we caught them right away because everything was in such good shape and held together really well that we were able to move really quickly. We could be really agile. No one had this fear of deployment that is really common in a lot of teams because everyone's afraid of deploying and breaking something, which is reasonable. You know, you don't want to be the one that breaks production. But if you have a really, really good test suite, 
then you can feel confident that, hey, when the tests are green, let's push it. We're pretty good. You know, we're feeling really good about this. Uh, the way a lot of people have that confidence now is they use coverage by lines of code. So they'll use something like coveralls or one of those tools. Uh, and they'll say, you know, we have, we have 98% test coverage on our code. We're good. Uh, but that's uh, insufficient for a lot of reasons. And so if you really want to be confident in this, you need to have measurement of coverage of your tests, not just by the lines of code, but by the logic in your code, because those two things do not match up. It's very, very easy to have lines of code that are covered and that you can still totally break and, uh, and not have a failing test. Because when you judge by lines of code, it's just saying, was this line of code executed? But it doesn't mean that there was actually an assertion made. It doesn't mean that uh, the line of code did anything. You know, it could have been totally wrong, but if you execute the line of code, then it still shows as coverage in your test report. So you don't get that with mutation testing. With mutation testing, if you get coverage, you know it's covered. So it gives you a lot of that, that confidence. And so that's why it's, it's such an important thing. But frankly, before you can get there, you need to set up some other things of, of you know, the automated deployments and stuff like that where you can really take advantage of it. So yeah, that's, we've got other fish to fry, but I, I really hope that one day soon we can get to that because in my experience, that is just a, a pleasure, an absolute pleasure to work in that environment as a developer. And then also for a, a team leader or for a business, you're going to get a lot more value out of your team a lot faster. They'll be able to respond faster to bugs. They'll be able to ship features a lot faster uh, it's just a better way to work for everybody. So hopefully this can help more people get there. That brings up a good question, just because you're talking about this idea of like, well, you know, your your particular situation with where you're working right now. It does make me wonder about like, where is the right point in a project's life cycle that mutation testing kind of starts to really make sense? You know, because I've, I've kind of learned property-based testing is not necessarily going to be my biggest win. That comes in more when I've kind of have something that I want to validate and settle and solidify. At least that's how I think about it. Like with mutation testing, it feels to me, and I just want to kind of run this by you and see what you think, but it feels to me like this is something I might want to bring in when I have a large, more mature code base. And by that time, I've gotten a lot of cruft because I've done a lot of refactoring. I fixed a lot of things. And when I do that, I have code like tests that are just abandoned, like they're kind of orphaned. Or there's orphaned functions that, you know, because part of my refactor left something there that's just really not being used. And it seems like I would see a lot of value there. Is, does that make sense for you? Or do you see there's other opportunities where I could be leveraging that? The trade-off is time upfront versus time later on. You don't need this upfront when you're just starting a new application. Same thing with a library. So like either a deployed like application, a web server running on a, a server somewhere, uh, or a, uh, a library. At the beginning, you don't need any of these things, but it's nice to have it at the beginning because if you add it when you already have all the cruft, just getting to the point of good, of okay, again, is very difficult. Uh, it's like, you know, whenever someone adds Credo to a project, for example, if you haven't had it, you start and you say, oh my God, I have like 1,500 things. How am I going to get through all these things? Like, for example... Benchy was one of the libraries that I did a lot of my early testing on with Muzak and Toby and I care a lot about testing. And I think I still had somewhere around uh, 3000 test uh, mutations that were generated. And out of those mutations, we had something like 
600 or something that were missed. Now, some of them, as I'll explain a little bit more, like some of them we will never be able to, to get because there are some things that you can't reasonably test, but we could do better. And that's with two people who care a lot about testing. And like, we always felt like we over test Benji. Like we, we write more tests than are needed. And that's not true at all. And we could have found that earlier on had we been using this the whole way through. It means that we can start chipping away, adding more tests if we want. But these sorts of things are often easier to start from the beginning with than to chip away at later on. Uh, So personally, if it were up to me, if I were starting a new project, I would add it from the beginning. Like I would try and get into that flow from the very beginning of set up your deployment, set up your CI, make sure your tests are solid and just let it, let it run from the very beginning because yeah, it takes a little bit longer to set up at front, but once you have it set up, you get to go so much faster and just the effect on a team of working in that environment, it, that alone, aside from just the general speed of all the automation of the deployment and the CI, the morale and sort of like culture boost to the team is worth a lot. So I personally would do it from the very beginning, but for a lot of places, those bugs in the beginning don't matter as much as just the raw time. Uh, so often you're not going to see it at the beginning. Uh, you'll see it introduced more often in mature code bases just because that's at the point where raw speed isn't as fast and bugs start to have real value, uh, like real, real value. I've, I've worked at, at companies where even very subtle bugs, the, the, the business impact could be measured in the tens of thousands of euro per day. So, you know, when you're starting to get to that scale, you want to have a really good test suite because it's worth tens of thousands of euro per day to avoid a very subtle bug living in production for a couple of weeks uh, that no one noticed because it was very, very subtle, uh, but they were missing a test and, you know, these things happen. Yeah, usually at, at earlier stage companies and at uh, newer libraries, those little bugs aren't so important. They're not going to have such a value. And the, the raw speed matters more than making things great and making things really correct. But personally, if it were up to me, I would do it from the very beginning. I like that perspective. Just like the idea, like you bring up Credo and I also like Dialyzer and I, I've been through the pain of adding Dialyzer later. And it's just like, dang, I, I should have done this earlier. So thank you for sharing that perspective. I appreciate that. So this might be a good time to just jump in and talk more about the library music. Like one of the questions I have is just, you know, you talked about how this modifies the code. I'm sorry, it modifies the expressions that it's evaluating. So I assume it's not actually modifying my code on my file system, but it's probably more AST based. Can you kind of share about how this library works? Sure thing. It depends on what you mean by modify my code. So it is not going to touch any of your Elixir source files, right? So none of those are ever going to get touched. It's like if it crashes, it I'm not left with a bunch of modified code that forced, I screwed up my Git, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, hopefully you commit before you run it. <laughs> no, so it won't touch any of the source files on disk. In most situations, it also will not touch any of the compiled Beam files on disk. So, you know, when you compile your Beam file on disk, that's there and that's how the, the incremental comp- compilation works so that, you know, it knows a bunch of this stuff is already compiled. I don't need to re- recompile everything. Uh, in pretty much every case, it's not going to touch that. What it's doing, though, is it's basically, uh, first, basically there's, there's three steps. So first it sort of does a little boot configuration and then it generates all possible mutations according to that configuration. Uh, there's way more configuration in Muzak Pro than in, in, in Muzak 
basically what it does is it goes through all of the source files in those uh, in your your application directory uh, so whatever your compile pads are for your test environment it will go through all of those and it will generate all of the possible mutations and it does that by reading the file and then once we've read it it walks the ast a whole bunch of times and basically makes a mutation every time it can and we have basically a, a run where there's one single mutation for every possible thing. Like I mentioned, Benchy has a little over 3,000. Uh, HexPM has, like currently, I don't even have all of the mutators implemented yet. But uh, so Benchy has a little over 3,000. HexPM had like 6,300 possible mutations. And it does stuff like, you know, if it sees an integer, change it to a different integer. If it sees an atom, change it to a different atom. Um, all the stuff with the Boolean operators, so greater than becomes less than, and greater than becomes greater than or equal to stuff like that. So changes all your constants, changes booleans, changes like the and, A-N-D, and ampersand, ampersand. So it will change ampersand, ampersand to A-N-D, but not the other way around. The, the, the strict boolean and instead of the loose, like truthy and. Same thing with or. Uh, it will do all kinds of stuff. Some of these mutators are only in, in Muzak Pro, but basically it goes through and it makes all possible mutations, and then uh, it will run those mutations. And then this is also something that can get a little fun because it can run them in different ways, depending on, like in Muzak Pro, you can run it uh, clustered. So if you want to run two or three at a time, it will spin up separate nodes and do some RPC calls and, and do all that stuff. You know, anything more than three nodes at a time, it actually is a little slower because you start getting um, contention at the CPU level for the scheduler. But with two or three, you do see a little bit of a speed up there. And so what it does is it will basically modify your code. So it applies that one mutation. It compiles a file. If that code that you are modifying is a macro, it will also first modify the macro and then modify anything else that depends on that macro. So yeah, we have to dig into the compilation manifest to see what the dependencies are if you're mutating a macro so that you mutate the macro and then recompile any files that depend on that macro so that, you know, it, it actually does its thing. The mutation can actually be propagated. So it, it does all of that recompilation if needed. And then once it recompiles, it runs your tests. And then it sees if you get a failure or not. Uh, when we run the tests, we really only care if there's one failure. If you get one failure, we stop. So it's really a matter of getting to the first failure as fast as possible, hopefully, to reduce runtime. Worst case scenario, it runs your whole test suite, doesn't find a failure, but then you have a mutation that survived. And then it does some formatting of that output of the mutations that survived and shows it to you in the console. And hopefully you can not have many, but if you do, then you can go and, and figure out, okay, this is what I'm seeing. Uh, maybe I'm missing a test. Maybe I'm not, not using that code. And it's, it's not something where it's a guarantee that you'll be able to look at it and immediately know what you need to do. But it is feedback, and it's valuable feedback. And to me, I think one of the other most important things is it's automated feedback, because this is the sort of thing that right now most teams are doing, but they're doing it in code review. A common thing that we do when we do code review is going through and looking and saying, okay, so they've implemented these functions. Do they have all the tests that they need? Is everything tested? It's a whole lot easier to not have a human do that, and it's a whole lot cheaper to not have a human do that. And it's a whole lot more accurate to not have a human do that. So this helps us avoid all of that. You know, if we can just say, oh, look, mutation tests are passing. The tests that are here cover everything there. 
We know that. Now we can focus on, are we solving the problem that we need to solve? Are these tests the right tests to cover that stuff? All of those sorts of things that a computer can't do, but that humans are really good at. That's the last bit of it is it gives us that, that feedback that we want that right now a human needs to do. Hopefully this can do much faster and much more accurately and, and we can get that feedback uh, in a way that will hopefully help us move a bit quicker and save some time. So you mentioned this idea of being able to farm out the work to like, you know, to a little cluster of like maybe up to three nodes or something to run all these mutations. And I was just curious as to, you know, because it sounds like just to me, it sounds like there could be a lot of like combinatorics, like just a lot of iterations of the, running these tests. And I'm just curious as to like, you know, if I just straight up run my X unit unit tests, like what should I expect? What's a reasonable expectation when I'm running Muzak or Muzak Pro? on my code base, like how long should I expect that to take? So this is the uh, million dollar problem with mutation testing, because the worst case scenario is that the mutation testing will run for N, where N is the number of possible mutations, times the runtime of your test suite, which can get pretty crazy, right? Like uh, right now to run on Benchy, I've got that down to run like everything on Benchy, which is not a big library, takes about two hours. If I were to run every possible mutation on Benchy, PM takes around six. That's, you know, not the world's biggest Phoenix application, but it is a Phoenix application to run everything. But the thing is, when you're using it as part of a team uh, and when you're really using mutation testing, you have to walk this line between accuracy and runtime. So the safest thing would be to always run all your tests all the time. But that's not reasonable. So what you do, you first off, you restrict mutations to only the lines that have been changed in what you're working on. So there's configuration in Muzak Pro. And actually, uh, by the time this is out, I'll be pushing this out to Muzak as well to allow you to configure uh, the application so that you can only mutate what is changed in a, a given commit or only mutate what's changed since uh, the last commit by a different author or however your team likes to work since the last merge commit or anything. So this is the first thing that drastically reduces the runtime. This gets you down from mutating everything all the time to only mutate what's changed. And this is the first simplest and most reasonable thing. And for pretty much any team that uses it, this is what you're going to be using, some form of this. It also, as a sort of ancillary bonus, makes nice small PRs much better and faster. Uh, you know, if you have a 2000 line PR, this is going to take a while to run versus if you have a, a 60 line PR. So uh, this is something that can do the biggest, the, the biggest thing, the biggest difference. The second thing that's typically done in most mutation testing libraries is that you restrict what tests are run. Uh, this gets a little more risky. Like I said, there's the trade-off of, of runtime versus uh, sort of riskiness. This gets a little more risky, especially in Elixir, because a lot of the time we're dealing with stateful stuff. So if you are to mutate something and a test doesn't explicitly hit a line, that doesn't mean that it's not implicitly hitting that line. If it's depending on some state or depending on a gen server having some property or depending on an ETS table somewhere or something, or even as is more common, depending on something completely outside of the system itself, depending on a file or something in the database, something like that. So the way I have that solved at the moment uh, is that we don't run only the tests that are hit for a given line, but we start with the tests that are hit for a given line. 
So uh, in Muzak Pro, there is a way that you can basically enable cover, and I'm trying to make cover a little bit better because it's not perfect for Elixir applications because it really wasn't built for Elixir applications. But you enable cover, and it basically runs your whole test suite once, cover compiled, uh, and then we get the information for each test, what lines are hit for that test. And so we say, you know, if we've mutated this line and this file, these are the tests that hit that line and that file. So we basically start with those because those are going to be the most likely to give you a failure. And again, we're trying to get to the first failure as fast as we can. So by running those first, hopefully that means that we'll get to that first failure faster. Uh, so that's the second thing that we do. And then after we go through those, then we run the rest of your test suite just to make sure. Uh, there may be more configuration and stuff if people want to be a little risky then you can maybe skip that for, for runtime. But my sort of guiding philosophy on this so far has been correctness over speed, is trying to keep it as correct as possible and then finding speed where I can, rather than having it not be correct but fast, which is the other thing, is starting fast and adding correctness. So I'm starting correct and I'm trying to find speed ups and things like that. But those are the two common speed ups, is restrict what's mutated and restrict what's, what's tested. And the other things that are pretty common are also like the, the parallelization, which in other languages and runtimes is more of an issue. Uh, like in, you know, in Ruby and in JavaScript and, and Python, uh, those are things where you get a lot of benefit out of the parallelization because you can't normally run tests async. For us, it's not as big a benefit. So running three or four nodes isn't as big a benefit, but it does have some benefit because there are some tests that can't be tested in parallel. And also there's just time of like compilation and reloading the application after you compile and after you recompile. So that's why I said sometimes running on two or three nodes locally, you can see a little bit of a speed up, like 20 to 30%, but it's never going to be like literally two to three times faster unless you were to actually build like a cluster and run it on multiple, uh, multiple hosts which it is not made for yet. <laughs> you know, it, it basically only, it, it does all of the clustering locally and sets up the cluster locally. In the future, if people wanted to, like, yeah, you could run this really fast if you cluster together 65, 32 core AWS instances. Like, sure, you, can, <laughs> you could churn through hex PM in like 10 minutes. Great. That's, that's probably not reasonable for most companies. Something you mentioned that I hadn't realized about Muzak before was the way that it could find unused code. Two, and I have two libraries in mind right now. There's one that is um, Rails oriented, is called Coverband, and I and I think of that one because it uh, it attacks the runtime part of it, which is can be hard, harder, much harder to find, right? Meta programmed methods, and you know, just because just because they're there, it doesn't mean that they're hit in runtime. Um, and and Coverband is a is a gem that can uh, that basically during runtime will tag every every method hit, you know, and give you an idea of how much churn there is on on methods and which ones are never hit. On the static side, there's, um, I think ThoughtBot or Josh Clayton um, has a, a couple of uh, packages out there. It's just called unused. And the way that it works is statically looking at C tags. I think it, it uses C tags. Um, it, it might be much more sophisticated underneath. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But it, it just looks at your code base statically and uh, leverages, um, you know, if things are called at all. That misses out on some runtime implications, I assume. How do you think that Muzak would work in those circumstances? Like, it really does sound like you're, you know, it, it touches both compile time things and runtime things. But it's not like while my real production app is running, it's more like while my test 
app is is running how, how do you think muzak could help with uh unused code or un, unused code paths for for folks that are looking for those kinds of uh, issues so the elixir compiler takes care of the static stuff for us it tells us if we have functions that aren't called um, because it can do all of that xref stuff uh, at compilation time so like the the static part solved it's the the runtime stuff and not even the the functions that aren't called but specifically code paths within functions or even boolean logic so for example let's imagine we have a boolean statement that says like if number is greater than 3 or number is greater than 4 right we know that that's redundant in some cases we could probably just say if number is greater than 3 but there's nothing that's going to tell us that until we mutate that code. So there will be a mutation that says if num is greater than three or num is greater than 20. And we can make that mutation and our tests will probably still pass. And then that can hopefully give us that feedback and it'll pop up in the CLI and it'll show us what the mutation was and what the original was and show us the diff there. And after seeing that feedback, hopefully I'll be able to look at it and be like, oh yeah, of course, that's totally redundant. I just need the first one. If num is greater than three, I can cut the rest of it. It's that sort of logical thing that's unused. It's really good for case statements that aren't hit to. You can look at it and you can see like, oh, this, this third branch in this case statement's never hit. Uh, let me try and test that. Maybe it's untested or maybe when you're trying to test it, you're like, oh, well, that can never be hit. I don't even need it. So it's never always clear immediately. Sometimes it is in that case of like the clearly redundant Boolean logic, but in some things like case statements, uh, pattern matches and case statements, pattern matches and function heads, it may not be abundantly clear that what you're hitting just isn't ever what you what you've written is never going to be hit that it's completely like an unused case clause or a function clause so it's that that it gives you uh, and sometimes you discover that right away sometimes you discover that when trying to write a test that hits it that oh i can never hit it like there's no way this this function does not return an error tuple it only ever returns nil or something and i'm pattern matching on an error tuple i can get rid of that I have already covered the nil. I can get rid of this whole clause, that sort of thing. Well, last week we talked with uh, Parker Selbert about his job processing library called Oban. And he also offers an Oban Pro. As far as I'm aware, Muzak Pro is only the second Pro kind of commercially offered library in Elixir that I'm aware of. So maybe you can kind of start to tell us, like, what is the difference between Muzak and Muzak Pro? So I can kind of figure out where I want to start or settle or what it is for me. Right. So this library, as I mentioned earlier, is hard. It's tricky. It's not an easy library to create or maintain. And uh, I have, well, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of open source work in my life. And I love a lot of it, but a lot of it is work. And I've become sort of uh, intimately aware that there are different kinds of open source projects. You know, there's the kind of open source project that just like is for people, you know, and it's nice to share my work with other people. You know, like if if I were doing working on like a, I don't know, a Super Nintendo emulator so people could play retro games on their computer. Cool. Great. But then there's the kind of open source, which is pretty much almost exclusively providing value to businesses. And what I don't want to do is be in the habit of uh, providing my services to businesses for free. It's just not a good use of my time. You know, I, I don't need to donate my time to make a whole bunch of startups' lives easier for free. And that's really what Muzak does. No one is going to have their personal life made better because of Muzak, but a whole lot of businesses are going to get a whole lot of value 
However, I didn't think that it was reasonable to only release the commercial version because so many people just don't even know what mutation testing is. They need some way to sort of kick the tires and like play with it a little bit. And that's what Muzak is designed or originally was designed as. I would ideally like to put as much of the value and as many of the features into Muzak as possible, the, the, the open version. If I get to a point where there's, you know, some level of support that I deem to be decent, that I can start moving more and more stuff into Muzak, out of Muzak Pro, so that it's in, in both places. I think what a lot of people call like the open core model, you know, where there's the, the sort of restricted basic version, and then there's the, the more fully featured pro version. Uh, and that's sort of what I'm gunning for here. I started off reserving a lot of features for Muzak Pro, also just because I wasn't sure what really would be the, the selling point for a lot of businesses. I mean, I had a pretty good idea. But, you know, I didn't know if, like, for example, the configuration to make it really easy to use in CI, if that would be the thing that people wanted, if that would be enough for most businesses to use the free version instead of the paid version, then I wouldn't want to put it in the free version, you know? Uh, what I'm finding so far, I mean, given I've, so far, I only have three paying customers and a couple others that are uh, open source libraries and stuff that I'm letting use for free. Like if, if anybody does have an open source library or you work for like a nonprofit or something, I'll totally give you a free license. Like I'm not, I'm not that wild about it, but I, I do want to put a limit on my corporate philanthropy these days. Uh, and so uh, that was the, the uh, impetus behind that. And, and also just because I generally get a little uncomfortable with the sponsorship model like I know what it's there for, but to me, I'm just way more comfortable with the exchange of like, hey, I wrote this software that provides your business a lot of value and it's really good and uh, it makes your business better and it makes your developers happier. Please pay me for it versus, hey, I wrote this software that provides a lot of value for your, your business and like, wouldn't it be a shame if I got really burnt out and couldn't work on it anymore? You should sponsor. You know, that doesn't feel so cool to me. You know, if I, again, if I were working on something that was making people's lives better, like personally, then great sponsorship is great. But for this, it doesn't feel right. Like I know GitHub just announced corporate sponsors too, but it just, this feels like a commercial transaction instead of a sponsorship transaction because it's mostly with businesses and companies. And so uh, that was the idea there. But for a while, I wasn't even going to open source any of it, but uh, in talking with some folks, I realized that so many people just don't know what mutation testing is and don't have any experience with it, that having some way for folks to sort of like kick the tires and see what it does a little bit is important because, you know, not many people are going to do it unless either I write like a book on the topic, which I'm not going to do, or unless uh, there's something that they can play with. And, you know, there are mutation testing libraries in most other languages at this point, I think. You know, there's Java, Python, JavaScript, Ruby, C Sharp, Scala. There's even an old one in, in Erlang that was somebody's grad thesis from a long time ago. I don't know if it's still maintained or anything. I, I doubt it is. But, you know, Elixir doesn't have a fully featured one. Some people started on them, didn't really finish, again, because like they're really hard. And they're, they're deceptive, these libraries, because to make it work, the basic case to make it work is really easy, but to make it work well is extremely hard. To make it something that someone can actually use for business, like for work, is a lot of work. To make it just like function on a theoretical level is easy, though. 
So it's pretty easy to just think like, oh yeah, I, like I had the, the proof of concept for music done in like two days and then it took me another year to finish. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's one of those kinds of things. And I, I do think having, having this in the, the Elixir community, in, in the, the ecosystem is important for adoption as well, which is another reason that I wanted to do it. Like mostly I wanted to do it to make my life better. But also it's one of those things that says like, yeah, the Elixir community has a fully fledged ecosystem. You know, you don't need to go to another language just because they have all the libraries. Elixir has all the libraries too, including the really hard ones like a mutation testing library. So hopefully this will enable some more uh, bigger companies that maybe are a little more hesitant to go to a newer community or a newer ecosystem. This will maybe be another sort of straw a feather in the cap for, for the Elixir community to help people adopt the language. Well, I know we have talked about um, sustainability in open source and development for some time. And you know we're very understanding and partial to the idea that we, we need to find good ways of doing this. So I appreciate your effort to offer this as a, a pro service with a kind of a more entry-level open version where I can see the value personally. I can try it out on my personal project before I even go into my employer and suggest this as something being for a project. It's like, I know how this works. I can play with this. So I think that's great. I love to see, you know, how this, as you go and develop this and, and, you know, continue in the community, I, I would love to see, and hopefully this is a successful model that is sustainable. And, you know, if it's something that works really well, I hope we can see other projects do this kind of thing so that we can have those really hard to solve problems being worked on actively. Maybe I'm throwing shade, but I think of all like the JavaScript frameworks where it's like, oh, I have an idea. It could be different. It could be better. And you throw something out and then it's like, oh, well, once you start, people start using it, it's like all the edge cases, you realize it falls down because like it's just not complete. And that is where it's hard. You know, it's getting it all the way across the line to make something really work well. I would love to, maybe you can just mention another thing that I had a question on is, you know, how are you actually making this available uh, as the paid version? Is there a private uh, hex package repo or like, how does that actually work? Yeah. So this one is, well, it's not tricky, but I went through a lot of different things uh, for this. So um, I think it was last year when I first started, at one point I tried a, a Kickstarter for this as another way of trying to fund it, like to fund the initial development, which of course failed. Like there was some support, but because it was mostly individuals, you know, it, it wasn't going to cut it. Uh, it wasn't anywhere close to what I would need to take like a month off of work and like really get it done. But right around the time that I launched the Kickstarter, Jose reached out to me and said that they were starting to work on uh, what was going to become Bitepack, mm-hmm. uh, which was recently, you know, they recently announced that they weren't going to move forward with it. And I think they open sourced what they had, but uh, yeah, like me and, and Parker were going to be sort of the the first two like guinea pigs on that. And that was going to be great because then it could just be, you know, it could be hex, but then I wouldn't have to worry about Stripe or anything. But like, it turns out that is actually a hard problem to solve. And so I spoke with Todd and Eric on the hex core team and they were like, yeah, you can totally use hex if you want. Technically what you would be doing is in violation of the terms of service, <laughs> but like we we probably won't call you out on it. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't really want to technically be in the violation of the terms of service. Uh, like for me to be in agreement with the terms of service for a private hex repo, I would have to uh, basically uh, bill per seat. And that doesn't seem like a reasonable way to pay for this or charge for this. Like, 
like, I don't want to be in the business of corporate, uh, corporate philanthropy, but I also don't want to just like rob people, you know? So music pros, $29 a month, which I think is totally reasonable for any business in the world, but I don't want to have it be like per seat and then charge like, I don't know, like PepsiCo or something. They probably have a ton of developers at this point, like charge PepsiCo, like, like three grand to use music, you know, that's not reasonable. So right now I spun up a private Git server, uh, which is a, a one-click thing on DigitalOcean. And so it's a Git dependency. Uh, I, when I have a new perversion, I tag it, I push it up to my private Git server, and then uh, I have a little bit of uh, basically glue code. So when you sign up for Muzak on the devonestis.com slash Muzak, you can buy it there. You do your stuff through Stripe, and then I just generate a user and a password for you and add you to that organization on that private Git server, give you your credentials and you're good to go. You pop those credentials in your mix file and clone it down just like anything else. Uh, it's not perfect. It's, you know, it would be way better if it was through hex because then you could have better versioning, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, technically it is more secure coming from hex. Yeah. So there are some ways, I mean, it still does use HTTPS for, for, for the Git with clone, but, uh, you know, technically coming from hex, that's, that's pretty solid. You get the shahs and everything. It compares all that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's Git at the moment. Uh, and that's the best that we have right now, but I would love if there was something like, like bite pack. I mean, clearly if, if Jose and then couldn't make it work, I don't think I'm going to, I'm certainly not going to take that business on, but I agree that this should be a more common thing. You know, it would be really awesome. Like, the thing that I would say is imagine if every company using Absinthe paid $5 a month for it, that would fund two people full time to work on Absinthe. Like imagine how great Absinthe would be versus like some of the corners, they're still a little rough in it sometimes because like Ben's been doing it like kind of on his own, kind of on part time whenever he can. And that's not reasonable, you know, like so much of this software really should be done as someone's job. And imagine how great the software would be if it was someone's job, you know, like, like Sidekick is awesome because it's been Mike's job forever. And so Sidekick is great. And imagine how like, like Phoenix is great because it's been Jose and Chris's job for years now, you know, and Elixir is great because it's been Jose's job for a while. And now it's like uh, Eric's job and like a, a bunch of people, it's been their job to work on this. And when it's somebody's job to make software, they do a really good job of it. And imagine how great some of these like core parts of our, our ecosystem could be if like every company just chipped in like five bucks a month, you know, that would, that would be enough to fund a full-time person at most places. But the thing is the infrastructure behind it is hard and selling it and marketing it and all this stuff, the, the taxes is a nightmare. Like it, it's not so bad for me because I've been a freelancer forever. So I'm already set up as a business in Germany and like, I'm used to the nightmare of the taxes and clients in different countries. And like I'm already, I'm already in it, you know, it's not so hard for me, but if I were an American and I needed to start collecting VAT, like from Spain and like Sweden and, and Germany and the Netherlands and like paying that, I would just, I wouldn't do it. So like, I understand that it's an extremely difficult thing to do without that infrastructure. It would sure be great if there was that infrastructure one of these days. So we're coming up on your time, but I do want to touch on uh, any particular future plans that you have for Muzak or Muzak Pro. Like you kind of alluded to a few things like, oh, I've got some things that I might pull from Pro back into the Muzak, but just kind of where do you want this to go in the future? 
Right. So the biggest thing is uh, by the time this comes out, by the time you're listening to this, uh, probably on the day of, actually, I'm pulling the configuration to basically allow you to like, really use the open source version of Muzak uh, from Hex to use that in CI. So the configuration to limit what gets uh, mutated more than what you can now. Right now in Muzak, regular Muzak, the open source version, you can only limit by uh, how by the file. So you can say like only mutate this file, uh, but I'm going to pull in the, the other stuff to allow you to say like only mutate what's changed in, since the last commit by a different author or since the last merge commit or anything. You'll have complete control over what gets mutated uh, in Muzak. And then I'm also hoping to also pull some of the uh, additional mutators down as well. So right now I have plans for about 25 mutators Maybe not all of them will work because some of them are uh, not the traditional mutators that you see in the mutation testing like academic papers. Uh, some of them are really Elixir-specific, like messing with pins and pattern matches, because that's something that I've seen as uh, a somewhat rare but nasty bug, um, and it's difficult to catch, especially if it's in your test. Uh, so um, playing with pins and mutators, stuff like that, playing with like width, the, the soft and the hard match in width. So like the arrow, the left arrow in width versus an actual equals match operator in a width clause, like messing with those, stuff like that. Uh, like I mentioned, the, the strict and and the not so strict and, so like the double ampersand versus and, A-N-D spelled out, stuff like that. So there's 25 mutators in uh, Muzak Pro. Not all of them are done yet, but I'm hoping to get most of the rest of them done soon. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to continue focusing on on evangelism and telling people about mutation testing and a bit of sales. And then when I know more about what is important to the pro version folks, then I will try and pull as much of the stuff that isn't that into the open source. Uh, one thing that is coming pretty soon for the pro version is uh, what I'm calling analysis mode. So there's a third thing actually that mutation testing can do that is slightly less well-known because it takes the longest to run. What mutation testing can also do is it can give you a little bit of analysis on your test suite, on if any of your tests are unneeded or not working or something like that. And it does that basically by basically running the same way that it normally does. It applies a mutation and runs your tests. But this time it doesn't stop at the first test. It always runs the whole test suite for every mutation. And it always has to be every mutation, whole test suite. But then it does a little bit of analysis and saying, okay, every time this one test failed, this other test failed as well with every case. If you see that, it's pretty likely that one of those tests doesn't need to exist. Also, if you have a test that after 6,000 mutations doesn't fail, it's pretty likely that test is never going to fail. <laughs> like you might want to look at that test and say, uh, I don't think this is doing anything. Uh, so that analysis mode uh, is going to come pretty soon you know, as it sounds, that's difficult. So it's taking a bit of time and also dealing with the runtime issues because, you know, if you have a big company, a big organization with a lot of tests and a big code base, you know, you could be looking at days of runtime. So there are ways in which I'm trying to sort of play around and make that not so bad. But that's the next big feature in Music Pro is that analysis mode. Uh, and that'll also come with, you know, charts and graphs and things people can show their managers Hopefully that will be a nice addition there. That's one of the things that people have been asking for, but the challenges of runtime are, are a big thing. Someone has asked like, well, maybe you could actually do a service that spins up those like 65 Amazon instances and clusters them together and runs it in like 
three minutes instead of in three days. It's not unreasonable to do, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to spin up EC2 instances these days and cluster them together, but uh, we'll see where that goes. But that's the next thing that I think is really cool that will hopefully come soon. Well, that people like be buying Muzak credits, you know, like it, <laughs> it gets you a whole lot more complex. So it sounds interesting. It sounds like you've got a lot that you've taken on and a lot that you're, you're working on and, and doing. And I really appreciate the effort that you've, that you're making to one, just kind of introduce mutation testing to the general Elixir ecosystem, because I've heard you talk about it like years ago, uh, Maybe it's one or two years. I don't know. But it was, you, ta- you talked about that this is something that was interesting to you. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. And so just the idea that this is something that people can start to play with and kind of check it out and see and run it on their own code and, and see what it does. And I think that's great. And so I appreciate uh, your efforts on doing that. And I really hope it works out to be a, that you're able to find a good financial way to make that sustainable and work. And, uh, you know, hopefully that can be a model that other people can use. But yeah. Before we go, like if people want to get in touch with you or if you want to provide any resources or anything, where should they go to do that? So the two best ways to get in touch with me, one is email. Uh, you can find my email on my website, devinestes.com. It's also just devin.c.estes at gmail.com. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Devin, S- Devin C. Estes. Uh, those are the two best ways to get in touch with me. Yeah, other resources, you know, my website has information about this, devinestes.com. Uh, the Muzak specific stuff is devinessis.com slash Muzak, M-U-Z-A-K. Uh, the documentation on Hexdocs for Muzak has a bunch of stuff there as well about like how to use it, all this stuff. So the documentation's up there. There's also documentation up for Muzak Pro. If you want to look at that, you can see the documentation. So I published that documentation to Hexdocs for Muzak Pro. So you can see what's in there and all the mutators. There's a, a list of what's implemented and not implemented. Uh, and so, yeah, if folks have questions. I also recorded a couple like intro YouTube videos, which you can see links to in the uh, announcement post on my website uh, about Muzak. So that should hopefully give folks an idea like what it looks like uh, when you run mutation testing. And uh, I'm planning to do a few more videos as well and a few more blog posts about this, and, uh, like working with it. Another thing I'm also thinking of doing, uh, which I don't know if it will be welcome or not yet, but uh, I'm hoping maybe soon because I've been running uh, a lot of tests on open source libraries is like opening up an issue saying like, here's the Muzak Pro output for uh, plug, you know, go nuts. These are all the tests that are possibly missing because it could be a really nice opportunity for a lot of people to make some contributions to some open source libraries if they want. They can clearly see like, oh, look, this important thing isn't tested. I can add a test for that. That might be a nice contribution to a bunch of libraries. It could also potentially drive a whole ton of traffic to some overwhelmed maintainers. So I don't know how that'll work yet, but we'll see. That's something that I'm thinking of doing because I think it might be nice and I think people might like it and it might make the open source stuff a little better too. Nice. Well, Devin, thank you for your time. Appreciate you meeting with us and sharing this insight and information. But that's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.